0: Welcome to Global Conversations from Scotland, brought to you by the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. Follow us via scga.scot or on social media. And now the podcast. Good morning and welcome to the latest podcast from the Scottish Council on Global Affairs. And this morning I'm joined by Ben Martell, who is a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at the University of Edinburgh has been doing some work on uh, the UK's relationship with the EU and how that's been affected by the events in uh, Ukraine. Good morning, Ben. Good morning, John. Thanks for having me. And I suppose the first question um, we'd like to ask is really, what brought you to this subject? I mean, obviously, you've got the academic background, but was there a particular element that you were looking for prior to Ukraine or was it the events in Ukraine that really kicked it off?
1: Yeah, so I think I was. This is an area that I've been covering for a long time. My work since the Brexit referendum has been on Britain's changing relationship with the European Union, um, with a particular focus on foreign and security policy. And that goes back to my graduate student days, where my, I was writing my PhD on party politics of uh, foreign and security policy. Um, and then, of course, when the Brexit shock happened. Uh, I sort of moved into that area because it was it was um, of interest to me, but um, but also because it affected mine and other people's lives so much. Um, so I've been charting that relationship for a long time, and and of course charting essentially the demise of the UK's foreign and security policy relationship with the European Union, and that's not something that I think was inherent in the Brexit vote, you know, the Brexit vote wasn't really much about foreign and security policy. Uh, The Leave campaign didn't talk too much about that. Um, There was always the hope, especially from officials on both sides, that the UK and the EU would find a way of working together, right? I mean, because Britain didn't see foreign and security policy relationship as too much of a threat, and the EU was quite keen to have the UK involved there. And and that's not the way that things worked out. And in the end, we we had that that famous sort of moment in early 2020 as, as the pandemic arrived and as the UK and the EU were negotiating the trade and cooperation agreement when Johnson said, OK, we're not going to negotiate a security agreement. We're going to take that out to the TCA and, and the sort of default to this, this kind of no deal scenario in security and defence. And so I was tracking that relationship and really interested in the politics that brought that about. Um, and then, of course, as, as events transpired, uh, just just under a year later, you had Russia's um, invasion of Ukraine. And of course, it couldn't have come at a, a worse time in, for the UK-EU security relationship. And so at that point, I was already interviewing people about the relationship and it started to change and so it started to capture a lot of that uh, in my research and thinking a bit more uh, seriously about why that was and what that how that relationship was changing.
0: Sure and I guess I mean just stepping back for, for one minute the irony is that uh, Brexit and the whole debate that preceded that came about at a time when foreign security policy was well obviously had been mandated in the treaties and so you had EU policy moving into an area in which the UK was traditionally very strong it had the relationships with the United States it had its role in the Security Council and it ought in other terms potentially to have be been an area where the UK could have played quite a uh, a leading role in 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 EU matters <laughs> Yeah, I think so. I mean,
1: when you look back at history, there's all these kind of bizarre ironies, isn't there? I mean, you know, one of them is that, yes, the EU has been becoming more of an important actor in security and defence policy. To a certain extent, the paradox there is that Britain has supported a lot of those moves whilst also working to kind of constrain them and channel them in ways that it considers uh, didn't undermine uh, the centrality of NATO and the transatlantic relationship. So Britain's always had a particular view of European security and defence cooperation, which has looked quite dissimilar from the French view uh, and to a certain extent, the German view. I think the other irony is that as Brexit was happening, as 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 the as Europe, but also the West to a certain extent was pulling apart because of the Brexit vote. It was at the time when sort of the unity of, of that geographical region was most prized. Right, that we were entering a much more dangerous world. This was you know just after the Russian um, annexation of the Crimea in 2014, um, and these two processes. I think they're interrelated, right? They're both redolent of the challenges of liberal international order and, and intensifying globalization, the the rise of the rest and the challenge of the liberal international order from, uh, from Russia, from China, from other regions of the world uh, with different views on how uh, how that system should operate interacts with the domestic opposition to from you know the quote unquote losers of globalization which was one of the forces behind the Brexit vote and so again it it looks paradoxical but um, and and of course this is how it was experienced by the European Council when when David Cameron in 2015 was asking to renegotiate Britain's relationship with the EU and of course they turned around and said but but we're trying, to, we're trying to think about what we should do about the annexation of Crimea. Um, but in a way, they have common sort of
0: origins, I think. And I suppose in that context, when you get to the the, the surroundings of the referendum, is there a question then about, do you, do you sense that the UK had always rather assumed that that external, that foreign aspect would be easier to hang on to or easier to somehow maintain without... Been tied down in in sort of effectively bilateral third country arrangements. They somehow thought that would there'd just be continuity there. To a certain extent, I think so. I think they
1: thought that there would be continuity because of the strong role that the UK could play, and I think they also thought that there might be some kind of bargaining advantage in that. Um, and. I think it's it's quite interesting to look back at that relationship. So, so thinking about what Theresa May wanted to do, I mean, she wanted this a uh, um, sort of deep, comprehensive partnership in security and defence, and she wanted it negotiated as quickly as possible. Um, a lot of her speeches from uh, mid 2018 are focused on these proposals for um, for the UK being really quite involved post Brexit in. Not just areas of uh, EU foreign security policy coordination and missions, but also some of the new things like permanent structure cooperation, which came out of um, Brexit, um, which of course allowed the UK's exit, allowing the EU to go further in this regard. So. I, I think it's interesting that the UK wanted to stay even more plugged in. The, there's various reasons for that, which include a, a desire to kind of make up for some of the lost ties from Brexit, a desire to hedge against perceived um, uh, isolationism of the Trump presidency in the United States. Um, and, and and so I think underlying that as well was this, you know, this this belief that, it would be easy enough for the uk to achieve that because there wasn't much of a sovereignty cost attached to um intergovernmental cooperation in this area the uk had a lot that it could add maybe that would allow the uk to get a, a quote unquote good deal there but maybe it would also feed into more positive political relationship in the other domains um and i think what's so interesting for me is how those assumptions kind of fail on on both sides so if you look at the domestic politics, you know, originally one of the, one of the great sort of claims that the Leave campaign made, which was, which was relatively fanciful, but which appealed to its supporters, was you can have all of the things you had before and you can take back control. Um, and foreign security policy might have been the one area where that actually would have been true where the EU would have welcomed UK participation, even if we were on the outside. And of course, the domestic politics of the May era, where uh, where re- the relationship with the EU post-Brexit became so toxic, when what Brexit meant became rapidly hurtled towards this idea of a, a clean break, closest to a no-deal Brexit as possible. Any kind of UK participation uh, that would previously have been beneficial right you know cherry picking suddenly became securitized and so the Tory right were very unhappy with what May was trying to do because we would be stuck in EU foreign policy coordination so what could have been perceived as a win um, in the end domestically was seen by many uh, as a risk and then on the EU side and, and it's a it's a story I don't have time to tell here, just how well the EU managed the process with, with sequencing and with a very clear emphasis on, you know, the indivisibility of the four freedoms, the the benefits and obligations of membership. Um, even though the EU wanted a deal in foreign and security policy, they started to see what May was seeking through the lens of cherry picking. Um, so I think it, in that sense, it, it became... Um, May's proposals became victim to the kind of the politics of Brexit and and, and issue linkage, um, and I think just as a kind of coda to this, what what happened afterwards when the Johnson government said, well, in that case we don't want to deal at all, which it which it could afford to do. It wasn't a nightmare scenario for the UK particularly. I think at that point the aim became instead of um, instead of finding a way to to stay plugged in on the European side, Britain would essentially use its heft in international affairs to shift the conversations away from the EU. And in that sense, would could could actively act to, um, to sort of change the forums where these um, conversations were taking place, right? So signing lots of bilateral relationships and security guarantees um, and seeking to have conversations in, in NATO and, and G7 rather than through the EU.
0: Yeah. So, so in one respect, it was effectively a form of collateral damage in the broader negotiation framework that that led to that. But also, I mean, there was an element in, within the campaign and, and indeed preceding the campaign in 2016 of this this fear in certain circles, or or the phantom raised of a European army or some kind of dominant European military presence that that certainly had some. It played quite well in some arguments, which in some of the places that led up to brexit. and and do you mean, do you think that was part of, in any way of some of these discussions, or was it just that the the political atmosphere around the entire deal became too complicated? I think it was very much how the politics
1: of Brexit evolved, because what May was proposing would have taken us nowhere near to that mythical EU army. Um, And we we saw a very big shift in preferences between 2016 um, and, uh, let's say, you know, 2017 to 2019, when, you know, and the reason for this, of course, is that the Brexit mandate is extremely vague, right? Nobody ever knew what Brexit meant. Um, May, as Prime Minister, tried to fill that in, I think she tried to do what successive prime ministers have tried to do as well, which is to have your cake and eat it. Um, And essentially, so May could combine a sort of hard rhetoric saying that we would take back control and we had strict red lines because she felt that you could negotiate that alongside a more generous economic arrangement. I mean, it was all based on, on very false premises about how much bargaining power the UK would have from the outside and 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 whether the German car industry would be able to lobby the Merkel government, who in turn could lobby all the rest of the member states. I mean, it, 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 fundamentally, it turned out that the German um, car manufacturers realised that they had far more of an interest in maintaining the European single market and its integrity than they did in selling more cars to the uk which which they can do anyway under under johnson's deal right and which, which tends to benefit the eu slightly more because you know there aren't many barriers to trading goods when and we import many goods and there are lots of barriers to trade and services and we export services so I, I think i think a lot has to be said for the way that the may government um, established the red lines but also set out a relatively um set out a hardline eurosceptic kind of discourse and at the same time on a path that could never be delivered because at that point once once may had said no deal is better than a bad deal and everyone had said her deal was a bad deal um that that really gave sucker to her um critics on the right to say well what we need to do now is is move further down that that staircase, right, further away, so that we can we can deliver on this autonomy. So I do think it was more about the politics of Brexit. I'm well aware of the you know, the vague um, Leave claims about a European army. The problem is I'm not I'm not really sure where they were designed to have. And I think where those really mattered um, was it among people who already disliked the idea of the EU as a kind of federal polity, and and so. It was less about whether or not you'll have a European army knocking on your door and much more about what that connotes in terms of uh, future European statehood. So in a sense, it was preaching to the converted. Um, And then there's a very particular niche part of the campaign, which I think was appealing to veterans, which was talking about various different regiments being smothered into control of some some sort of French-led European military which didn't doesn't really fit the reality of um, CSDP, doesn't fit the reality of European security and defence cooperation um, and and doesn't take into account the fact that the British government is the one that goes and and wipes out these regiments with the stroke of a pen anyway. So I take your point that that was an interesting part of the campaign but I think that the real blame lies in the in the sort of the cyclical aspects of Brexit that constantly pushed the UK to ever more radical interpretations of Brexit in order to meet those
0: red lines that were set out in 2017. Sure, sure. And of course, some of those phantoms of a ever unified European army never quite got past the hurdle of what do you do with neutral countries and um, things like this anyway. But um, so I suppose once once you get through the May period, you suddenly then have that sort of almost perfect storm. She is uh, removed entirely because of the Brexit process and not long after you have the formal departure and not long after you have COVID and not long after that you have Ukraine. So we've we've not really known any sense of normality about where these relations might in- end up since the end of the negotiations effectively. Yeah, I think so. Um, and
1: the way that we teach this on in our introduction to European politics course here, because of course the EU has also experienced these events as crises as well. As we we just had the week on um, the, the eurozone crisis, and then that segues into uh, a week on the COVID crisis, and then we deal with the Ukraine crisis, and finally the Brexit crisis. And so um, it, it 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 really is. Uh, a very tumultuous period. And I think what what's interested me most about this is the way that these different crises interact. Um, because I think so, that, you know, let's think about how Ukraine has has impacted on the UK's relationship with the EU. It has to a certain extent brought both sides closer together, and you would expect that it would, right? Because everything we know about international relations would suggest that having a common enemy and an external threat and and one that confronts countries in a relatively symmetric fashion right everyone is more insecure because of what Putin did in Ukraine um, not least the Ukrainians uh, that that all of this would um, have the effect of uh, bringing of dampening smaller conflicts, of bringing all sides together, of, of establishing incentives for common action, but probably also a greater sense of we and collective identity, uh, and also really sort of undermining um, political contestation, right? I mean, it's quite, especially in the UK, it's very difficult to think of the parties being too far apart on their position on Ukraine. Maybe parts of the Labour left, but again there's there's pretty much a consensus there. So it's quite interesting how that has affected the relationship, but how that relationship between the UK and the EU is still shaped to a certain extent by Brexit. So we've seen that alongside the increase in cooperation after uh, February 2022, we've seen uh, a lot of issues coming from the poor political relationship and and, and johnson's kind of saber rattling style we had a lot of issues related to the northern ireland protocol and britain's efforts to wriggle out of, of that international treaty that it signed um, and we still see a long-standing reticence on the tory uh, benches in particular against any kind of formalized uh, UK EU security cooperation and that's shaped the way that both sides have responded um to ukraine and i think what's so interesting there is that even given that even given the severity of threat and the, and the high stakes issues involved these political spats keep coming back. You can't get to, you know, Brexit in this sense is the biggest hangover. You can't get away from it even, even years after uh, elements are
0: supposedly um, at least stabilised. And and of course, you've now got, I mean, in some respects, the UK was more or less in lockstep with the rest of Europe in terms of its immediate response to Ukraine. Just in the same way, I suppose, that more or less we've had the same response at least politically to what's currently happening in israel palestine but the difference for our eu uk relationships is of course two member states that were traditionally not active in this area have now become formal members of nato or one is and one is about to be all things being equal plus you've got the fact that the the center of the war itself ukraine is now formally an accession State or or a candidate for accession which entirely changes the nature of the relationship between the member states and their their internal focus but also to a greater or lesser extent leaves the uk outside the room on two different issues I
1: think that's there's lots of different angles here and, and the eu NATO relationship makes it a particularly complex one but I think you're absolutely right that the so if you think about how the johnson government initially responded to ukraine it, it, it was in lockstep because i guess all the countries of europe had a relatively similar um incentive structure it, and it was a leader in several respects right it was it was the first mover often when military equipment was sent to ukraine there was a very strong um diplomatic effort um at, at the same time i think uh it, it it's been there was very much an a belief on the UK side that this validated a lot of Britain's kind of worldview um, without challenge, right? That, you know, Britain is a major security actor. It's the linchpin of uh, European security. It's the one that had the right, i.e. the hawkish position on, on Russia. Uh, Realising that, um, you know, d- diplomacy and détente and all that would have been great, but it, it wasn't really fitting with um, with Putin's actions. That that NATO is the indispensable um, uh, security and defence provider on the continent, and that Europe can't or shouldn't act without the strong support of the US. And so, to a certain extent, you know, Britain very much played up its leadership role, but also felt, I think, um, validated by a lot of what was happening. But at the same time, I think what the conflict is showing is also the indispensability of the EU Um, and the fact that this is a conflict that touches on lots of areas where the EU has competences and where the UK is now out of the room. Um, And thinking here in terms of uh, the EU's ability to um to pool the kind of resources of the member states um and, and ensure that uh, and 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 you know use its kind of facilities in brussels to act as a clearinghouse uh, to make this more efficient um the fact that the eu can operate in ways that that nato can't right that you can you can uh, effectively uh, make ukraine a moldova candidate countries without uh uh, the, the risk of nuclear escalation, which would have happened if if NATO got too involved in the conflict, um, the fact that the EU is the, the main mover on on sanctions and and an important mover on energy policy, uh, and I suppose the the need for one one would hope um, post war reconstruction when all of this is over, where the EU will probably play a much more important role, and so I think the UK this any UK idea that This was now only NATO's hour has been very much uh, nixed by the realities of of how Europe has acted collectively uh, in response to
0: Ukraine. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, we don't know the timescale for Ukraine, obviously, but we do know that there's a. The clock is running on the current UK government, Um, whether or not it changes or not. We know that there's what, 14 months left at best in this current parliament and. And there's a lot of talk in the UK if the government changes that somehow that may change the relationship in aspects with the EU. But is this one of these areas where actually there isn't too much you can change at the moment?
1: To a, to a certain extent, I think that's true. I I think the dividing line between the parties that's come out so far is on the degree of formalisation of the relationship. So under Sunak, we've seen a much more um, pragmatic approach. Um, Johnson obviously stepped up cooperation and, and a lot of important things happened under him Sunak oh, apologies. so trust first there was a, a little bit of a reset but not long yes. enough to really get that going but but that was very much carried on by uh, Sunak who who uh, also supported some some things like um like Macron's um you know Euro- European um political community initiative that actually Uh, have proved to be quite useful ways of getting the Brits in the room. So SUNAX and and by extension a conservative position at the moment is we don't need anything formal, we don't want to sign anything and we don't want to have structured cooperation, but we do want to find ways that we can collaborate together. Um, And if you speak to officials on both sides, they'll say that there's an awful lot that you can do informally, um, and that that can be stepped up more. Whereas the Labour position um, since uh, David Lammy's speech as as Shadow Foreign Secretary has been that they would support, uh, you know, a a deal, um, an agreement that looks a lot like Theresa May's agreement in security and defence. there are going to be some advantages to this. You can, you can extend cooperation in other areas. If you have a formal agreement, it's regularised, it's institutionalised. You can have a more complex division of labour where you set up working groups instead of just having sort of ad hoc collaboration on the issues of the day. And so it might contribute to a more robust working relationship, but it would still depend on good informal relations. I mean, I, I think possibly the more important thing is that uh, if a Labour government does come in, it would probably seek and foster and probably deliver a, a, a more positive political relationship with European partners and with the EU. And that would help to ensure that that relation, that the good level of cooperation we have at the moment um, wasn't torn asunder by by further spats say with France um, or, or, or over migration issues um so there's some there's some water between the parties but not much I think what's interesting as well is that you know it I don't think it's a coincidence that Labour's big speech on what it would do in Europe was linked to security and defense. It's not just that it's an area that we're talking about a lot because of Ukraine. It's also the low-hanging fruit. And it doesn't require Labour to start unpicking any of the aspects of the TCA or going back over any of the boundary conditions of access to the single market. And so in this sense, I suppose one of the real dynamics we've seen in foreign policy, and, and this is a paper i wrote up with Alexander Masarevich at the the EUI, uh, is that you're seeing this kind of compensatory dynamic in foreign policy, whereby you're not able to deliver a closer economic relationship with Europe, but you probably can deliver a closer foreign policy one, which allows you to do a bit of the signalling about repairing the relationship, is the obverse of Johnson, of course, who is looking to signal a very, very distant economic relationship, but probably knows the UK couldn't withstand a no-deal Brexit. And so a no-deal in security policy allows you to say that you're stripping all of these things out. So we don't know if it'll be a Labour government. We will have to see. Not too much will change, but I think if it does, it'll be in a relatively positive
0: uh, direction for UK-EU security relationship. And, of course, we've got... uh... We've got an end to the mandate of the European institutions next year. We've got European elections in June, I think. Um, we'll have a new commission and so on later the year. And, of course, inevitably, which is something we tended to forget in the UK, in any one year, three or four or five of the member state governments within the EU will change as well. So you've got a whatever may be a desire over here, irrespective of who the government is, isn't necessarily automatically matched by what's happening on the other side of the channel.
1: I think that's very true. I I think, generally speaking, given the UK's centrality in European security and defence, I think there's always going to be an interest in um, keeping the UK close. So I wouldn't imagine that the demand side would change so much. I mean, the one thing that really did alter that was uh, the protocol situation, where there was such a decline in trust that, um, that several member states reportedly no longer wanted uh, a, an agreement on security and defence, which, which was which very surprising, um, given how steadfast uh, the, the council had been about seeking uh, cooperation in that area. So yeah, there will be there will be a new leadership in Europe. I, I suspect that the priorities will be much the same. Um, We've had Juncker's political Europe, we've had Von der Leyen's Geopolitical Commission. Some the terms always change, there'll be a new buzzword. It'll probably be quite close to the EU becoming more of a geopolitical actor. It'll probably look a little bit like strategic autonomy. Um so although you have a lot of churn on the EU side, I think the preferences there are a little bit more stable. I, I think the What the UK has to get used to, and this is probably quite a painful lesson, and I think it will be especially painful for a Labour government, is that They don't really care that much about what's happening in the UK. It's a third country. They're not looking to renegotiate the trade and cooperation agreement. Um, The UK is out. There's no desire to reopen a lot of these thorny issues. And actually Brexit in many ways has been quite good for the EU. Um, It weathered that storm very well, came out a stronger actor. And, and isn't really keen to start uh, thinking about ways it can give the UK special treatment. And, and, and I guess that's, that's a bit of a tragedy for those of us, myself included, who identify as, as remainers and quite want a close relationship with Europe. It's actually our, our position is the one that the Europeans want the least. Which is to say, it looks like cherry picking. Um, whereas the the Johnson ideal of a clean break actually fits quite nicely with what the Europeans want: is you're,
0: you're either Norway or you're pretty
1: much out, and the third country.
0: Absolutely, and and at the same time, all of the major challenges for Europe as as a as a unit lie to the east and to a certain extent to the south. It's Russia, Ukraine. It's israel Palestine its migration across the Mediterranean its climate, and you know we we are increasingly the northwest corner of that so um the focus shifts as as it's been doing i mean we will see accession presumably to the the remaining states in the Balkans as well and the Ju- in due course so there's there's just a yeah there's a sense of distance growing that's that's fascinating I'm conscious you have many crises to discuss with your pupils, so I don't want to keep you any longer is there any any last reflections you have on the environment we're left
1: in now? I mean, just to re- return to what I said at the beginning, I think we're we're really seeing here the the tensions arising from it, it's it's very very tempting, I suppose, to reduce everything to the the years when you became politically active, and for me that would have been the nineteen nineties. And so what I see here is essentially the tensions of um, globalization, of the the expansion of the sort of the the Western institutions of international order around the world, creating uh, domestic opposition, populism, um, blowback and a a diffusion of kind of non-Western ideals. And that creates a very, very uh, complex international order, but also makes it very difficult um, in, in the West and in Europe for Uh, for states um, to bring their societies along with them because you you see a more dangerous world but also a a collapse of state society relations. Um, I I don't have any solution to this. The one thing I would say is I think I'm relatively positive about the prospects for uh, improved relations between the UK and the EU because it's not clear how much worse they could get than they have been in the last few years. And I think all of the external pressure that we're going to see increasing over the next few years is going to to auger for greater cooperation. So that that's a, a cautious note of optimism, but only on the basis of such a pessimistic assessment of world politics.
0: Well, I suppose in the current climate we should take any small moments of cautious optimism that we can we can seize onto. So it just remains me to say Ben Martel, thanks very much indeed for for giving us your time and um, good luck with everything that lies ahead. And we'll doubtless be back in touch with you soon. Wonderful. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Global Conversations from Scotland. Find us at scga.scot and subscribe through your podcast provider.